Well, hello, everyone. Hello. Good afternoon. Welcome back. We find ourselves at the third episode of Open Swim. All right. My name is Hallie Bram Kogelschatz here as in past installments with... Eric Kogelschatz. Jennifer Cho Salif. Brian Andrew Jasinski. So, hey, guys. Good afternoon again. <laughs> <laughs> or morning, depending on when people are listening. Or evening. Good afternoon, know. good evening, and good night. Yes. Yeah. We have a lot to talk about this this week, this installment, this episode. Um, Including you, Miss Hallie. That's right. And Mr. Eric, congratulations. Well, Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, we've added a fourth member to our little tribe. Our daughter was born a, a month ago, a month ago Sunday. Noah Vivian Kogelschatz. She's tiny and she's adorable. Very cute. Very cute. And I am very sleep deprived. <laughs> so hopefully I'm making sense on this episode, but hey, we'll see how things go. We'll pull it together. I think it'll be fine. Fix it in post. <laughs> Fix it in post. Eugene. So we have a lot to talk about this episode. Um, there's a lot happening on the digital front at the moment. And so we've been hearing some rumblings. Um, there's a little bit of drama and gossip as well. Yeah, I think a lot of that drama is surrounding Google right now, uh, specifically related to the platform YouTube. Uh, so what happened in the UK was that there was uh, some extremist content that was on YouTube and brands' ads were appearing next to this content. What kind of content are we talking about? Uh, this content ranged from you know propaganda for some of the terrorists to training videos that were out there and following those videos or beforehand as pre-roll, they made a big announcement about it. But this actually started in the UK and then expanded to the United States where a lot of these brands started to pull out their advertising dollars from YouTube. And some of those brands included AT&T, Verizon, Johnson & Johnson. It's a very um, understandable reason for them to get out because of this content that's out there that's negative and their brands are being juxtaposed against that. And obviously um, this is a very extreme case of this, but, you know, as an advertiser, I mean, there are, there are lesser, you know, versions of this where your content may, may appear or your ad may appear next to content that just isn't brand right for you. So I think that, um, you know, I, I'm just curious to see what ends up happening with the way that content is vetted or if it will be vetted in a more active way. Obviously this gets into all sorts of freedom of speech, FTC, you know, guideline type um, conversations, you know, and what content can and can be uploaded just in general. Um, so, I mean, there are, there are some ethical things at play here too, but, you know, from the advertiser standpoint, I'm just wondering what kind of um, safeguard you have as an advertiser so that your brand does not appear next to something that is um, just not brand right. Yeah, so what Google's done is they've made this announcement for these improvements, and they're in three categories. The first is safer defaults for brands. Uh, so when people upload their commercials or their videos, they come preset with these um, settings so that the brands are somewhat protected from content that doesn't align with their brand. The second thing they're doing is they're simplifying the management of exclusions, so it'll make it very easy for people to control those platforms, whether it's AdWords, 
video or even Google display. Google has made these recommendations. Now the next step is to really implement them. Mm -hmm. And then that will build confidence with brands to come back to Google. Going back to the conversation around the brands that are leaving, like Verizon and AT&T, the question is, will they come back? Because Verizon and AT&T are actually trying to build platforms that would compete with YouTube, or they may want to come back and, and support the efforts of, of Google and YouTube. So we'll see what happens there. The bigger conversation, though, is around this controversial content that's out there, and will Google uh, remove it? Um, or will they just control it so that brands' content is not next to that controversial content? I mean, I think they need to really look at filtering this to make sure that that content isn't even there. It's a big question about freedom of speech, but we're talking about content that is leading people into directions that are less than ideal for our community and, and our well, world. And I think that that's a really big conversation. When you start to say freedom of speech on um, you know, networks like YouTube... So I'm really curious to get Jen's perspective on this, having come from a media background. Well, I'm surprised that there isn't there aren't safeguards in place right now with YouTube. With, I mean, and I think call it controversial, whatever, however you what you want to label it. But I'm pretty sure your average consumer doesn't want to see terrorist footage, training camps, and that kind of thing. And there there are even with freedom of speech, I don't think that includes hate speech, and that doesn't include. Um, platforms that promote racist ideals. Well, it's or... the old adage of you can't call fire in a crowded theater, right? Exactly. I mean, so freedom yeah. of speech does have its limitations, but is that what we're really talking about here? And to your point, you know, there are limitations on channels like YouTube. They do have policies in place. The good news is that Google did expand their definition of hate speech. So now under its advertising policy, it includes vulnerable groups, um, which includes those discriminated against because of their identity, social economic class, or country of origin. I guess the question is how they're enforcing those policies. And if they're enforcing them enough, you know, are they are they screening every piece of content that goes up there? You know, I, I don't know. Well, they're definitely not doing what Facebook is doing. I think Facebook does a great job at controlling that content, but a lot of people complain about that because they think that they're actually... Censoring? Censoring what people are doing. And I think that's what we're getting to. It's like, you know, do we think that screening content and taking off content that YouTube feels is discriminatory or hateful, Jen, to your point, do we feel that that's censorship? Like, where do we draw the line? Um, or do we draw the line? You know, is, is that something that they should be doing more actively? You know, because I agree with you. Most people don't want to see that. And certainly from brand or an advertiser standpoint, you don't want to see your brand end up next to one of these types of videos. I just wonder if the FCC regulates YouTube. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They do. I th because if they do, then wouldn't there be issues with, I mean, you have a, let's say you have this terrorist training camp video that's circulating on YouTube and Mattel has a commercial that inadvertently ends up as a bumper before this terrorist video, then... I'm just surprised there is no algorithm in place or something where there's safeguards for advertisers. Well, there's with two things. Like yeah, there's two I things. I said the same thing. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that this even happened in the first place. Right. And how could this happen? Well, right. YouTube has these safeguards in place. They're just, they just weren't where they needed to be to protect these brands. So now they're expanding them. I should clarify the FCC is the Federal Communications Commission. They regulate interstate and international communications by radio, television, internet, satellite, and cable across the country. 
On the flip side, you have the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission, and their purpose is to prevent business practices that are anti-competitive or deceptive or unfair to consumers. So the focus here is more on commercial communications. That said, the FTC definitely has regulations in place to protect both consumers and brands on YouTube. So Google follows those guidelines. However, in this situation with the controversy around this this content, there's two things at play. There's the original content that users are creating and the branded content. The FTC guidelines applies mainly to the brands and protecting them from the commercial communications. Uh, But a terrorist video is not branded content. Exactly. So that gets into another category of freedom of speech. And, 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 and those two worlds collide all the time, and, and some of the, there's a lot of gray area. Um, I, I want to read one thing from uh, Philip Schindler, who is the uh, chief business officer at Google, and, and this is the response to everything that happened in, in the UK. Uh, this is just one excerpt. Today, anyone with a smartphone can be a content creator, app developer, entrepreneur, and Google has enabled millions of content creators and publishers to be heard, find an audience, earn a living, or even build a business. Much of this is made possible through advertising. So the statement there is that they need to support advertising because that allows them to have this platform. But they need to make sure that it's protecting the user. And if you have these these videos that are coming up and then ads that are before or after, the advertiser is spending money in those dollars. And those ads are going to continue to go up against that content. So... Is the advertiser endorsing that product? Are are they supporting that product? It, yeah. There's just so many questions there. Absolutely. Well, and for me, I guess, you know, I would be really curious to see if, as a business, YouTube has, like, a mission vision statement. I'm sure that that exists somewhere. Um, and that, the reason I'm interested in seeing that is because I think if you go back to why they exist in the first place, what they want to be um, in the future, I think you'll have or at least I would hope that you would have a guiding light for how to deal with situations like this. You know, I, I, I would assume that as a business, they don't want to be allowing or, or condoning certain types of communication. Um, and there would be a temperature check for what that is in their mission and vision statement. Well, yeah, and, and their mission is to organize the world's data. And for a long time, their motto was, don't be evil. So it, I think well, it kind for of... Well, Google, but not for YouTube. Because here's the thing. If, if you were to say organizing the world's data is the reason why YouTube exists, then you could make an argument that terrorist content should be allowed on there because it's a point of data. It's not necessarily condoning it, but it's allowing it to exist and organizing it. But in this country, the First Amendment doesn't protect um, hate speech. Correct. And nor does it in the UK, which yeah. is where this is taking place. So I, I, I would agree. Um, but these are different things. You know, we're talking about the reason, from a business case standpoint, the reason that something exists versus what is legal um, and what responsibility this business has to content creators and advertisers as a result. It's a very complicated issue. Um, and it definitely goes beyond law and beyond ethics. Um, it kind of comes to them as a private entity to decide how they're going to deal with it. But as an advertiser, I would want to know before I conducted a buy moving forward that there was some kind of safeguard in place. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see how this evolves. 
All right. So Alphabet is the holding company for Google. It was, it was created a, a few years ago. Their mission is to give ambitious projects the resources, freedom, and focus to make their ideas happen. So under that, they align all, their, all of their different divisions, one of which is Google from the search engine perspective and, and AdWords and all that. And then the other is YouTube. So Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful, while YouTube is focusing on providing fast and easy video access and ability to share videos frequently. So Hallie, you're completely right. The current mission of YouTube focuses solely on the speed and efficiency of allowing people to access the videos, not the quality of the content or protecting them. So that's the charge for YouTube. How can they create the tools to allow users and brands to filter the content so that they have experiences that align with their vision? and desired experience. So Eric, I know one of the concerns that you had was how long it took Google to put out a statement. You were even, you felt a little disappointed by that. Do you feel that, you know, that that time that was taken to release that statement was partly because of the fact of this is new territory and it is such a, a new challenge that they really found themselves in a sense baffled by, you know, not only what happened, but how to respond to it and then how to move forward. I, I do think it's a, a newer challenge. And I also think that a lot of people just took it for granted that Google was always thinking of everyone's best interest and protecting people. Um, mind you, we're thinking it's a very simple task to, to control all this right. content that's out there. So I think what they need to do now that they took the time to make that statement and they put these guidelines in place, they need to offer tools to marketers so that they have control over this. And I, I wouldn't say that Facebook is perfect at this, but I do think the ability to target on Facebook is often better than on Google. Google is based on behavior, which is fabulous. But what Facebook does is they have predefined segments based on people's interest. So you can exclude someone who's interested in propaganda like this very easily. And, and I, I think that that needs to be taken into account in what Google does moving forward. So we'll see how they handle this. about segmentation in this first section here and I think Jen had a very surprising experience in this realm as a consumer this week. I'm curious if you can just talk us through your journey and through um, just in terms of the customer experience and maybe how this affects brands. Yeah so my daughter Izzy she's seven and she's obsessed with American Girl dolls as many young little girls in America are. It's like Cabbage Patch Kids for our generation. Now it's American Girl Dolls. But the neat thing about these American Girl Dolls is they're um, different ethnicities and they have different stories. 
Um, it's very much telling an American story. And so Izzy and I were uh, in L.A. over the summer, and they have a huge American Girl doll store in Los Angeles. It's like two stories. I mean, it's huge. There's like a little salon in there for your doll to get her hair done and a little a restaurant for tea parties. Anyway, we were walking through. There's a hospital too, right? There's a hospital. They mend your doll if she has a little broken leg or whatnot, and she leaves with a gown. Wow. Yeah. American I'm girl kind dolls of get treated better. afraid of this whole world. Oh, no, it's Being coming the for Noah. Of a, of a girl now. It's I would adorable. like to volunteer as a candy striper at an American girl <laughs> doll hospital. You'd make such a good candy It'd be striper. Fun. Anyway. So we were... I smell a Halloween costume for Brian next year. <laughs> so who would design the gown then? DVF or... Grey Cardigan. Exactly. Like okay. Grey Cardigan, ex-American girl. Exactly. Um, so Izzy was noticing... Call me girl. Call me girl. So Izzy was noticing how none of the dolls, none of the dolls were Asian-American. And Izzy being part Asian was, of course, concerned about this. And so it kind of struck up a conversation between she and I about identity and toys and um, just, yeah, not feeling included. And so it's been bothering me since the summer. And I don't know what inspired me last night, but so I, I go on to the American Girl site and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this conversation with my daughter and I'm getting annoyed. And so I go to the site and I'm looking for an Asian American, American Girl doll. And apparently there was an Asian American doll, and her name was Ivy Ling, but they discontinued her in 2014, along with an African American doll. So that made me, made my blood boil even more. Like, why on earth would they discontinue two um, dolls that are telling these really important stories? And uh, so I found, I was Googling and trying to find, like, a human being to talk to, and so I uh, found the Mattel customer service hotline, because Mattel owns American Girl. And I got this really nice, she sounded like a nice, nice old lady in Wisconsin. Her name was Virginia. And I asked her, I told her, hello. And I gave her my name and I said, I'm a loyal American Girl doll customer. And my daughter and I were just wondering, why is there no Asian American American Girl doll? And she said, oh, actually, we have a new doll coming out this spring. And her name is Z Yang. So I got all excited. Z Yang, wow, this is really cool. And so she helped me on the website and unfortunately it was like buried in the website. It was at the bottom page. You had to click two more pages to even find out about Ziyang. But there she was. Ziyang is coming out uh, this spring, so any day now. But to my, much to my chagrin, she doesn't look Asian. So God bless Virginia. She was uh, very helpful. But, um, you know, she, she was like really excited to tell me about Ziyang until the moment I, I said to her, oh, well, this is great that American Girl has an Asian American doll. However, she doesn't look Asian to me at all. And it was like one of those needle off the record moments. She just had nothing to say. And I think she was just kind of taken aback by my comment to which she replied, oh, well, we there's contact information at the bottom of our website. And you can write, you can write to whoever you'd like, um, so I did a little more research last night, and I found two of the board members at Mattel are of Asian descent, Dominic Ng and um, a gentleman, I forgot his first name, but he's he looks like he's Indian American, uh, and his last name is Prabhu. So I've decided I'm going to write a letter to Mr. Prabhu and Mr. Ng 
uh, maybe to get their ear about this issue because Zi Yang does not look Asian. She apparently is a character on one of their television shows, on one of the American Girl shows. She doesn't look Asian, American, and two, and B, I found out also that she's supposed to be Korean American. Yang is not a predominantly Korean last name. It's most, mostly a Chinese last name. There are very few Korean Americans with the last name, or Koreans for that matter, with the last name Yang. So to me, being a Korean American, if you're going to make a Korean American doll, why don't you give her a last name like Park or Kim or Lee, Chung? I mean, those are it much like more there are common. many options to choose yeah, from. Yeah. So how did the decision makers come to Z Yang, which sounds Chinese, and she's supposed to be Korean American, and she doesn't look Asian? So my hands were kind of up in the air last this night. Like a host of problems with this doll. <laughs> so it, it. I wonder if it, there's any sort of research, like focus grouping, after the doll was created, because you know what's really funny about this? When I was a kid. I remember attending a focus group for American Girl. And I remember they gave us dolls to play with and look at. And so I know at least at that point, and this is many, 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 many moons ago, probably when the brand was getting started. Um, but I know at that point they did test the products in different markets before they launched them. And I'm wondering if there was testing. I would have to assume there was. But well, how could this not come up? I feel like it... it um touches upon some broader topics. Another aspect is Carlos and I were talking about this yesterday and he had mentioned, well, if you're, you know, these dolls are produced in China, right? The irony of American girl dolls made in China. You have just practically speaking at a business level, you have these machines. It would be very costly to have a new mold, a new doll face and make it look more, you know, with predominant, like more striking Asian features. I get that part, but I feel like it lacks sensitivity and yeah, you might have, maybe it's more expensive, but what's more important doesn't make it right. Because if at the end of the day, my daughter wants to see a doll that looks more like her and there are other well, and kids. That's the point with American girl dolls, Absolutely. right? Is that they're showcasing different and they're telling types stories. of Americans. Yeah. Yeah. So like this Ivy lean character, I thought was, I thought was great because it was, she was a Chinese American girl who grew up in San Francisco and San Francisco has a very large predominantly Chinese population um, and so it told that story I think she grew up in the 70s in Chinatown in San Francisco great American story so to discontinue that doll is cut to me like just erasing that story and I I have to you know and not to sound as we're, we keep talking about sounding insensitive but do you think it came down to sales is, are those well, the reasons I, I those dolls were discontinued? It, if it does, I would say to Mattel, Asian Americans have a collective buying power of $1.3 trillion in this country. So if, if it comes down to sales, why don't you tap into something that is relevant to um, a, a group that has an enormous amount of buying power? Maybe there's a way to keep certain characters, quote unquote, alive through content rather than completely shelving the character altogether. So I'm curious, like, at this point in time with how marketing has evolved, is there really a need to, quote unquote, kill off characters within a product line rather than continue to tell their story in another relevant way and then potentially have the ability to continue manufacturing that product in the future? Yeah, they have Once shows. Once the buying interest is there. I know they have shows and they have diverse characters in these shows, but I think it's important to have a doll, to have an actual doll Absolutely, in the collection yeah. that reflects 
that reflects America. I mean, good grief, you're calling it American Girl. So I'm just kind of scratching my head because after they discontinued the Ivy Lang doll in 2014, they never offered, they meaning American Girl, they never offered a reason why. There was no reason why they shelved, I mean, not even shelved, discontinued this doll. Right now, we're making some assumptions about their intent for removing that doll. But I think if we analyze the experience you had, we could give Mattel even more ideas on how to improve their business. One being that customer service experience that you had. Instead of, what was her name again? Virginia. Virginia. So Virginia sounded great. She, and, she sounded great, but I, I think she wasn't trained as to receive my follow-up question about the, oh, hey, she doesn't look Asian. I appreciate that. You know, the company has... That was my reaction. Exactly. She was like, this wasn't in the manual. This isn't in the script. <laughs> She's and probably looking at her manual like, oh no, where's that, where's that page where I talked to them? About? And she pushed you right to the website, said mm-hmm. write a letter. Instead, she could have taken your response, then wrote you a letter thanking you for your time and summarizing that conversation and then gave you updates on what happened after that. Sure, if everyone did this, it's going to be a lot of work for Mattel. But if they're not thinking about that customer experience and how to improve it at every step, when there's friction like that, you have to turn it into a positive experience for the, the customer. Absolutely. And making it open to the consumer. I mean, I was researching for quite a bit of time to even find somebody that I could talk to at the corporate level at Mattel. And to me, that shows that they're just there. There should be a, a better channel of communication between the consumer and people in rooms that are making decisions. Absolutely. One thing that comes to mind for me, as well as I'm curious in, in the attempt to be very sensitive to other cultures, they're ironically in turn becoming very insensitive. Um, are they afraid to be too distinct with facial features of a certain race in the fear that it's going to come across like car- caricature, like a caricature, like a tokenism, a tokenism, exactly, exactly. But um, I think I, it's almost. I, I totally get what you're saying, but I think it's worse if you're putting out an Asian American doll oh, who doesn't look Asian. No, and I'm not. Ju- <laughs> in, in no way am I justifying it. I'm, I'm no, trying know, to get my put mean. myself in, in their mindset because, quite frankly, when you told me the story, I was amazed because I would think of any other company, you know, from my you know limited knowledge of the American Girl, you know, experience, and I, I know that it's a big. Um, event. It's almost like a, a, a passage, a, a rite of passage. Um, you know, I've been to New York City and you, you see these stores and it, you know, and I've seen on Facebook friends who take their daughters there for, you know, to Chicago or, or to New York or LA for a birthday weekend. And that's, you know, the big, you know, token that, you know, of the trip that they're going for. So it does amaze me that in these, you know, metropolis settings that it is so limited in terms of of the selection if you will yeah and those american girls they ain't cheap no can i bring up something else that kind of upsets me about this whole um discussion i was actually just reading an article about um the discontinued american girl dolls and this was back in 2014 so these are the dolls that we're talking about on this show and apparently all of the dolls that were discontinued that were quote unquote um 
dolls of color, how they're describing them, were all considered to be companion dolls. These were not main characters in the American Girl lineup. So to me, what's concerning about this is it looks like in addition to the Asian American doll that was discontinued, there was also a doll that was African American with French roots. Um, Her character was set in the 1850s in New Orleans named Cecile Ray. Um, And all of these dolls were not you know, they were not main characters. They were just friends to the Caucasian American Girl dolls. So I guess what upsets me is that, you know, in the main lineup, do we have any characters that are not Caucasian females? Or now I think there's a Caucasian male. There's, I think her name's Addie. She's African American. I forget which time period, but I know that there's... She's a main character. She's a main character. Okay, so scratch what I just said. No, but there's not enough. If you look at the lineup, I don't think it's nearly as inclusive as it could be to represent an American story. It sets a weird precedent to have these characters always be companion yeah, characters. corollary characters. Yeah, They're exactly. not main characters, right? The and stories PS, don't rev- revolve around them. P.S. The Ivy Ling character, the Asian American that was discontinued, if you look at her, she doesn't look Asian American either. Or she doesn't look Asian either. She... The only thing Asian about her is her chi pao, the traditional Chinese dress she wears, and the fact that she has these these uh, blunt cut black bangs. So, again, it might be an issue of oh, it's just too expensive to make special molds to make Asian looking American girl dolls. But again, to that, I would say, well, then cough up the extra dough. Or I mean, th- these dolls are one hundred fifteen dollars each. They're not cheap. So if I want to go out and... I, I should have that choice as a consumer if I want to buy a well, doll. Well, and they're customizable, that, correct? You can you can get the ones that are customizable, you, um, but they're not a main character. These would be characters that you, or dolls that you would create. I would think that it would be relatively cost-effective enough for them to be able to customize faces on dolls. Yeah, I mean, well, we're talking about detaching a head may, on a maybe doll. Maybe they should think about that and it would help them... Generate more revenue because apparently, uh, I was looking at Wall Street Journal article and Mattel has taken a dip in their revenue. Yeah, well, and I think so. you bring up a good point because what you're getting into is is this a problem of product availability or is it a product of awareness and marketing? You know, and tapping into a to a, a, a segment of the market that has the buying power that wants to spend money in these types of products. Um, I don't have enough data to understand if that's really true other than the, you know, the, the figure that you threw out there. But I am kind of curious if they put enough effort behind marketing this product to the audience that wants it um, versus shelving it before they made a go at trying to promote it to that you know, demographic. So again, things I don't know that I'd love to look into more. Um, but that might be part of it as well as you know, maybe there wasn't the marketing and distribution there. To, to which Mattel could use Shark Amino's help. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, Jen, keep us posted. Let us know where you net I out. I will. Absolutely. Uh, Let you know my letter goes. Yeah. And I'm making a prediction. I think at the season finale of this season of American Girl, there's going to be a figure, a shadowy figure at the end of the episode, and they're going to be like, Ivy Ling. <laughs> dun, dun, back dun. from the dead. She's back. Just like Bobby Ewing. I thought <laughs> back and she looks Asian. I thought that the shadowy figure was going to be Brian Andrew Jasinski, Candy Striper. <laughs> <laughs>
think this story around American Girl is really interesting because it's an example of very valuable insights from the customer. And it comes in the form un, of unsolicited content. Typically, research is solicited. So brands will go out there and they find their audience. They conduct one-on-one interviews, focus groups, online surveys, whatever it might be. Um, there was a study that was recently put out by Sterling Bone, the associate marketing professor at Utah State's Huntsman School of Business. And he actually analyzed market research to understand what type of questions will result in the outcome that brands might want to achieve. So there are two types of questions in market research. You have open-ended or closed-ended questions. And this professor wanted to analyze specifically open-ended questions as they relate to positive inquiries. So questions like, what went well today at your visit? How was that experience at the American Girl store? Those types of questions that are leading the participant to give you some type of positive input on that experience. So what he found was that for these positive inquiry questions, those participants reported increased levels of satisfaction and boosted the chance for customers to purchase again and also the amount of money they would spend. So the the research was actually influencing their future behavior as it related to the brand. So it's really no surprise that people are happier when they focus on the positive. So by asking that question of that positive experience, they're probably going to answer it in some positive form. But this brings up the opportunity for brands to specifically focus on these types of questions to influence their brand health metrics. So for example, a marketing manager might tailor or customize their research so that it increases their net promoter score. And the reason they would do that is because it directly correlates with their income. They might get bonuses. And this allows people to really use research in a way that's dishonest. Obviously, this is a horrible thing. So how do you balance this? Because you have to have those questions that do focus on the positive, but they also have to have the negative side of things. So I guess I want to pose that to you guys. Is this manipulation? Is it ethical? Do we think that managers in marketing and advertising will use this to their advantage to artificially increase their brand health metrics? Well, you were recently just saying the other day about a, uh, it was after a customer service situation that you had where you were asked to rate your uh, experience from one to five. and But then they gave you the footnote that anything below a five is failing. Yeah. So suddenly it's playing with your, you know, almost your guilt emotion of, oh my goodness, if I rate a four, which technically wouldn't be a bad score, that would be like a B, yeah. you know, but they are posing it as it's either pass or fail, um, which I think is right in line with what you were just speaking about, the whole manipulation of a high score. Absolutely. Because it was, for me, it was, this was at FedEx office and I was very impressed by the experience I had with uh, the customer service route. So I went out of my way to make the phone call and, and give this feedback. And I was planning to give them a five star anyways, but it was just interesting because I felt like I was being forced or persuaded. That's what I'm saying. You're suddenly given this ultimatum is what it is. It's, it's black or white, you know, and, and that doesn't make sense on a five point scale. You know, that, that would be... It doesn't be, give you a choice. There is really no choice. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly an influence of 
of, of literally <laughs> corralling you into giving them a five. And that's why it's important to have those open-ended and closed-ended questions. So this example, the five-star is closed because it only gives the, the participant so many options, obviously. Right. So, But if you're going to ask that type of question, it's best to follow it up with them, some type of open-ended scenario so that they can give that kind of authentic feedback. From my experience, I, I think it's very interesting because um, there were two brands that I worked on where I actually saw this in effect. One was with Moen, and the other was an experience with Hospice of the Western Reserve here in Ohio. So the experience with Moen, uh, I was actually conducting in-depth interviews. It was an ethnographic study. And I went to Home Depot with these participants. We walked around. I asked them questions. And we specifically looked at the Moen products. And after the research was over, he stayed in the aisle and looked at the products and ended up buying a Moen product. And I thought that was very interesting because I learned about his beliefs and his perspective on the brand when we spoke. But I do believe that affected him in some way because he immediately bought the Moen product. Sure, he could have had made up his mind before he walked into um, the store that day, but he didn't know he was going to talk to me about Moen. It was just general you know, home improvement products. So I, I found that very interesting. Another scenario was with Hospice of the Western Reserve, uh, we were interviewing uh, caregivers. And again, this was an in-depth interview format. And the person I interviewed, it was the first time they spoke to anyone since their loved one passed away. And it was the first time they came back to Hospice of the Western Reserve after that f- person passed away. So it opened up so many emotions in that interview. And she was very upset. And we immediately built this connection and had a great conversation. And at the end of it, she couldn't stop talking about how great Hospice of the Western Reserve was. Leading up to that point, she couldn't believe that no one that no one called her to see how she was doing. But after we had that conversation, she just started sharing all these great experiences. And of course, it was a very difficult time for her, so she might have been focusing on that. But nonetheless, after that experience, she couldn't help but talk about the great experience she had at Hospice. And we ended up walking around the facility. It's right on Lake Erie. It was a beautiful day. It was just really incredible. This was after the research, obviously, but in both those scenarios, the research, the the purpose of the research was to gain insight from those customers about that experience and how to improve it. But at the same time, how to build tools to make it better for them. Um, and, And the outcome of that was that these these participants had a deeper connection with those brands. Um, so I, I do think it works, but I don't think you should ever use research in this way with this intent because it's you're just going down a, the wrong path. And you always have to know that when you're conducting this type of research, you have, to, you have to think about what you're trying to gain, the type of insight, and also the effects that it might have on that participant because as, as market researchers or just marketing professionals, we have to understand that there is this constant dichotomy of giving people information and experience they need and the products and services they need and then persuasion and then coercing them or pushing them into d- different directions, influencing them. 
So you have to lean closer to that information side. I think now is the time when brands need to focus more on that information and that experience and um, engaging with customers. So I guess in summer, I think it's, it's really interesting research on research. Um, and I hope that marketers are, are thoughtful of using these type of uh, open-ended positive inquiry questions in the future. I do think it's a case of empowering the person that they were polling and letting them go beyond the confines of five questions with five dots that you check off, you know, one through five. I think it's, you have to have the, you have to have the courage to allow that person that you are getting your research from to speak outside the confines of those five dots. And though it may not necessarily be what you want to hear, I think in both of those scenarios that you spoke about, Eric, though both of those situations were that person discovering how impressed they were with the product. You know, perhaps they even surprised themselves because they had the opportunity to speak and experience their... Sorry. They had the opportunity to speak to their experience with either the the product or the service and in, in, in the case of hospice, you know, and yeah, I think that's fascinating, especially the hospice story where there's such a negative connotation when you hear the word hospice, that usually means end of a chapter. It's usually when things are not good for lack of a better term. And, but again, it, it usually marks the end of a journey. And so you gave her the tools to go back and, to experience and be able to almost metabolize what they did for her and for her family and giving it a positive spin and and almost allowing her to close that chapter in a sense. And like you said, the fact that she was surprised and startled even that nobody, you know, came to check on her, you know, because there is that whole, you know, perception of the medical industry, you know, it's, you know, that's, it's like to them, it's like changing a carburetor, you know, they, they're desensitized to death and they're desensitized to the emotions that are surrounding, you know, it's something that they experience every day, but, you know, almost detaching from the fact that this is an incredibly emotional and even traumatic experience that their friends and family are going through. Um, and then on a, you know, a simpler level, if you will, the Moen story was, I think, again, just the fact that he had the opportunity to hear about the product and, and give his opinions. It's almost like he convinced himself. So it, it's, you know, I think it's, um, it could be akin to when you do, sorry, I think those five point grading systems are akin to it sounds strange, but you know, you hear about these little league baseball games with no scores. Yeah. What do you learn from them? Yeah. You know, and so it's almost like when you have this five or fail mentality and you don't have the courage to allow the person and the customer or the prospective customer to give you facts that you may not want to hear and and quote unquote lose a game, you're not gonna grow from that. Yeah, absolutely. I think your experience also speaks to this idea of authenticity. And I think the hospice story, just your authenticity with her allowed her to be open in return. And I think from that, it was like the fountain opened. And I think it was mutually beneficial. 
Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then the moan story. It's interesting. I, I feel like the customer service, um, the customer service representatives are the ones on the front lines, like the woman I spoke with at Mattel. They don't realize, and maybe this is a larger question um, in terms of influence, just how important their job is. Because you're interfacing with the customer, with the person that's going to spend their hard-earned money on whatever the product is, American Girl or a new kitchen faucet at Mullen or putting their loved one at the hospice. And... um, Well, they're all such divergent services and divergent products. But at the end of the day, like you just said, it comes down to customer... or It comes down to customer satisfaction, customer interactivity with the product or the service, and then what, how they're left feeling after the purchase, after the experience, you know, knowing that that cycle doesn't end at the cash register. And how those experiences should fit, should fit within the company's brand. Connecting, again, to your own example, I think a, for me personally, a, an example of that is Home Depot versus Lowe's. Whereas Home Depot speaks to the professional Lowe's caters to the DIY individual. You know, um, you have to speak a certain language and have a level of knowledge, personally, I feel, at Home Depot versus Lowe's. Um, And I do think that they market themselves that way. The logos alone, to me, say that. Where Home Depot's looks very constructed and, you know, built, whereas... Lowe's is literally looks like a roof. You know, it's very subliminal, but you know, even even in the fonts, you know, there's there's a little bit more of a welcoming nature to the Lowe's um, logo that I, I think speaks in turn to their inclusivity, if you will. I wanted to piggyback on something you were saying, just this fine line between information and persuasion, yeah. and I, I feel like. The direction that branded storytelling is going is very much um, the less like, let me twist your arm and tell you why this product is so great, but more, let me tell you why this product is so great. Let me tell you why we love it so much. And so you're, I feel like you're killing two birds with one stone because A, you're being authentic and people love authenticity, right? I mean, we all crave authenticity. Oh, yeah. And then B... You are also um, telling the, your brand message, your brand story. So it's authenticity, and then you're informing. But that on t- people pick up on that authenticity, and so um, it, it's kind of like you're saying, "Oh, look, this is this is so amazing! I love it. I'll tell you why I love this product so much." And and it's it's genuine. It's like you can really tell. Yeah, they they love what they're doing. They love what they're producing. They they want to share it. It's like gospel. They mm-hmm. they want to share this good news. <laughs> and then the consumer's like, why wouldn't I want to know about that? Why wouldn't I want to taste this awesome iced tea? Why would I not want to try that awesome gadget? Everybody over there looks like they're having fun. They're the ones making it and they're having fun with it. I feel like that's so much more compelling. And has so much more influence than the the maybe I don't I don't know if I should call it the old school way of advertising or, or marketing. No, product, it is old school, absolutely. right? And and to me, that authenticity shines through, and it gets people really excited, and it gets the the people that are making the product excited. And so it's it's like this collective experience, 
more than this is me to me trying to sell something to you. Um, cause I think at the end, at the end of the day, people don't want to be sold to, you know, like in that used car salesman kind of way. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> but they want to be a part of something that's yeah. genuine and authentic and yeah, makes everyone feel good. I think it's unquestionable that one product that is universally used and a part of everybody's everyday life, maybe almost to an extreme of being too much part of our everyday lives, but that would be the internet and and the use of the internet. Um, And I think what's really interesting is uh, Mozilla just put out a, what they're calling the the internet health report. They're talking about what's helping and what's hurting our largest global research. Um, They are calling this a open source initiative to document and explain what's happening to the health of the internet by combining research from multiple sources. Um, And there are five pillars. And what they're doing is um, backing up each of these pillars with featured stories um, that apply to each of the pillars. And they have this roadmap that they have where it began in January. Through the months of February and March, they have been gathering feedback um, on prototype and ideas for this first version. And they're summarizing the feedback and other resources in a new blog. This coming July through early fall, they want to collaboratively shape the next version of the report with key allies. And then late in the year, they would launch um, their first version of this internet health report. The five pillars are open innovation, asking how open is it, digital inclusion, who is welcome online, decentralization, who controls the internet, privacy and security, asking if the web is safe and secure, which I think speaks to what we spoke about earlier with the YouTube advertising, and web literacy, who can succeed online. Um, What really struck me in particular is the digital inclusion. Um, And the, one of the featured stories by Kevin Zawicki speaks to when the internet doesn't speak your language. And what's, I was absolutely just as a, Jen, as I was amazed by your story about the American girl saga, basically, um, it's really fascinating that um, the internet's obviously it spanners spans all corners of the globe, but, while only a quarter of the globe speaks English, 54% of the world's websites are in English. And as Kevin said, an equally startling statistic is while more than 1 billion individuals speak Chinese, only 2% of the web content is in Chinese. So that I think wow. that aligns to what you were speaking about earlier about the buying power. Kevin goes on to um, delve into the idea of the driving force behind this English-centric web being largely economic, um, the fact that content creators target the largest and most lucrative markets, which are located in North America and Western Europe. Um, basically, the idea is, though, that these implications are going beyond um, economics, and it influences the way that um, the the users are basically influencing and transforming um, as Kevin says, cultures, behaviors, and perceptions. So I found that incredibly interesting. Much like I was surprised by the the issues that you, again, John, that you spoke about with American Girl, this was completely unreal to me. The idea of this, almost the inaccessibility that the web actually has, where, you know, you think about it as this, you know, global, you know, um, 
all you think about it as this global resource that everybody has the ability to access. And though they do have the ability to access it, there's quite the wall basically between them and that that tool that is the internet. So just curious about your thoughts on this, not only this initiative, but which of those pillars do you think are, you know, something that are, are most pressing and, and how they connect to some of the issues and situations that we speak about, you know, clients facing? It goes back to the access. For people to have access to the internet, that is that is a key here because a lot of people just don't have a Wi-Fi connection. They don't have the ability to get online. So if we are able to establish that, then people can go on and learn and, and also teach others. So if we, once we accomplish that, it really opens the doors for the world. So I think that pillar that Mozilla is focusing on is really, really important. And it also speaks to the idea of enabling others to interact with each other regardless of their background, where they're from, economics, geography, you name it. It kind of ties into net neutrality in a, in a way that it, because it, net neutrality is all about enabling access for all content and applications, which is interesting. That connects to our conversation earlier about YouTube. Um, but when you think about this from the, the individual, that perspective, it has to be about access. So I think that's probably the most important pillar that they've outlined. Circling back to the idea of digital inclusion and that's those surprising statistics around the um, the availability of, of additional languages beyond English on websites. At Shark Amino, we have been working with a community development organization that recognize that that is a large part of their demographic that they serve and that comes to them for assistance. And at a very basic level, if you do not offer that alternative and that ability for their website to also be in another language, they are by default excluding who their customer is. And so it comes down once again to that user experience, that recognition of who your customer is, what they're looking for, and serving their needs, you know, and it and sometimes it it's something as basic as providing them access and the ability to engage with your messaging. You're going to need a bigger boat. So for my bigger boat, I'm actually going to give a shout out to Google, which is completely ironic considering our conversation today. I I feel that I have a complete love-hate relationship with them right now. But recently, Google.org has announced uh, that they're giving $50 million to support nonprofits using technology to tackle global education challenges in three areas. And actually, one of them is what we talked about with Mozilla. So one is giving kids the right materials. Two is keeping teachers trained and engaged. And the last is helping students learn in crisis. So bringing everything back together, I think what Mozilla is doing is is exceptional. And the fact that Google is able to donate those dollars to support some of those initiatives, I know they're not working directly together, but they are working together for the same cause is, is really impressive. So Google, you get my bigger boat. This week, my bigger boat goes out to April, the giraffe in upstate New York, who is still pregnant. How is that possible that I had my child 
before April had her baby giraffe. I feel for you, April. Hang in there, lady. For my picks, two people need a bigger boat. First, Virginia at Mattel. Bless her soul, needs a bigger boat. <laughs> because she, she was... dealt with you. Because <laughs> <laughs> she dealt with this crazy mom. Um, no, she was so gracious when she took my call and really listened to my questions and was very patient with me. And even though we never resolved the, the issue of this new American Girl doll character, Zi Yang, not looking Asian at all, she was still very gracious. And even though she didn't have an answer, she pointed me in a direction where I could find answers. So, bigger boat to you, Virginia. The other person I have to piggyback um, onto Virginia is my friend Diane, who gave me the heads up that there are two members on Mattel's board that have Asian-sounding names that I should look into contacting them. So, Diane, you get a bigger boat, too. My bigger boat this week goes to PBS. In this day where so many fantastic things such as PBS seem to be on a very unnecessary and ridiculous chopping block... And, and I will be completely honest, I'm not somebody who I, I would say that I'm a big PBS viewer myself, but I do know of its importance and I know of, you know, what it's bring, what it brings to TV and always has brought to TV. And I was very fortunate to happen upon a documentary called Dorothea Lang, Grab a Hunk of Lightning, which um, filmed in the in 1964. Um, it was the last year of her life. Um, Dorothea Lang, a lot of people know her as the photographer that captured the haunting and dark days of the Great Depression and and most notably known through her photo of the migrant mother. Um, This particular documentary followed her in the last year of her life as she prepared to curate her um, show at the at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City um, that actually opened in January of 1965, I believe. So she died just a few months before it um, actually was, you know, open to exhibition. Um, but it's through, it's really fantastic. It's actually told through the eyes of her granddaughter. Um, and you know, who's a young girl in the documentary and through her narration of the documentary, just really, you know, you, you had the sense of not only what a, strong and really iconic character Dorothea was, and especially in that time. But it just was a moment that struck me. There's really nothing else like it. In honor of National Autism Awareness Month, this episode of Open Swim is in support of our friends at Milestones Autism Resources, a nonprofit that helps individuals with autism reach their unique potential. Milestones provides education and coaching for family members and professionals. Their conferences, workshops, help desk, and online resources connect the autism community with vital information and each other. Learn more at milestones.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow. On the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.